Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. This is God's word. Amen. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Some people may not have made it back because that was such a short uh, scripture reading, and you may be thinking, man, that's different. We usually read longer passages. There's just so much good stuff in this text this morning, and uh, shout out to to all the dads who, even though their wives were gone, got the kids dressed and here this morning, Uh, and I had that dilemma at my house as well, and so uh, I just want to really strip things down, take these two passages, and look at some of the great things uh, that the scripture has uh, to say to us here. Uh, we, you know, the, the providence that God dealt me this week is, uh, and the week that my wife was gone for most of the week was the week that we happened to be preaching on Zechariah, which even for guys like me that spent uh, tens of thousands of dollars, or at least of my parents' dollars, to get a master's degree in these things, even those guys really have no idea what all this stuff's about. And so, uh, there is a very clear reference here Paralleled in the New Testament, speaking of Jesus, in these verses in Zechariah chapter 9. And so it's the best place for us to kind of land and spend some time together this morning. But this, this prophet, Zechariah, is the most difficult of all of the minor prophets. But as with the rest of the minor prophets, Zechariah is about how to find sh- the strength you need to endure difficult times like exile. Remember, that's what's going on historically as all of these things are being written. Uh, he, and he wants us to experience what he says here in verse 10, peace. And the word there is shalom. You see that? Um, Verse 10, he will speak peace to the nations. That's shalom. And the word shalom refers to the state of inner and outer calm and flourishing no matter what's happening around you. Let me say that again. That biblical word shalom refers to a state of inner, first inner, which is good news for me, but also outer, uh, calm and flourishing no matter what else is going on around you. That high or low, good or bad, in the middle of chaos, or really, at you know, things are going pretty well, there's an inner and an outer calm and flourishing uh, that you can experience. And Zechariah's answer to how we get this peace that he so longs for us, that we so desperately need, is this. It goes something like this. He says, flourishing comes from, first, knowing that you need a king, Secondly, knowing the king you need. And if you know that you need a king, and if you know the king you need, then you can find peace. And so what we need, and what we're going to see this morning, is we need humility to know that we need a king. We need theology to know, that we know the king that we need. And when humility and theology come together in our life, that's when we can begin to experience and enjoy this peace. Okay, so let's look at those three things together from this text There's a lot of really great stuff for us to spend time on just in these two verses. But first, okay, in order to flourish, this inner and outer calm and flourishing, no matter what's happening around you, in order to experience this, you have to know you need a king. Now look at verse 9 with me for just a minute. What is the response 
to the king's coming. See, the, the, the prophet's announcing the king's coming to his people. And I want you to notice what the response is that he calls for. He says, verse 9, Rejoice, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And so what we learn, and it's the phrase that I want to stick with for the entire morning because it's so powerful. I think we were made to rejoice in being ruled. We've been made to rejoice at being ruled. In the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus was coming into the city of Jerusalem for the last time before his crucifixion, what we call his triumphal entry, Matthew quotes this passage in Zechariah. And part of the reason is because in, chapters, um, in, in later chapters, chapter 14 of Zechariah, we're told that the Mount of Olives, this prophet tells us, to the east of the city is where the Lord would ultimately, in the great day of the Lord, at the end of time, where he would stand to defeat the enemies of his people. And so Jesus is coming over the Mount of Olives, and uh, Matthew probably remembers the passage in Zechariah 14. And Jesus is there, the king, here in Zechariah, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the king, finally coming into God's city to work salvation for God's people and to rule over them and the whole world for the flourishing of the entire created order. And do you remember what the response of the people was? They began to sing and shout and dance and all other kinds of things Presbyterians are typically really, really uncomfortable with. (laughs) Celebrate. They begin to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was such an uproar that in one of the other Gospels we're told that there were some religious leaders there, and these people were really upset about this. And they asked Jesus to quiet the crowds down. And (laughs) this is one of my favorite things that happens in the whole Bible. Jesus says, I can't. And they say, why not? He says, because if they stop singing and start to be quiet, the rocks are going to start to sing. And that's what Psalm 98 that Jonathan read at the beginning of our, our, our uh, service this morning in a call to worship is referring to when it commands us to make a joyful noise before the king at his coming because if we don't, we'll get left out of the celebration because the rivers will clap their hands and the hills will sing for joy and the trees will cry out. What is, I mean, what is all of that? It means that the coming of the king to rule and the judge is such gospel, that the created order itself is ready to burst into celebration. And and if the rocks are poised to cry out at his coming, shouldn't we be also? Rejoice, he says. Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, behold, your king is coming to you. We were made to rejoice in being ruled by our king. So let me ask this question of you this morning. Or let me just pose it this way. We love, we love that Jesus is a savior, but do you love that he's a king? Is your response to his coming as king in your life to rejoice and sing and shout aloud like the rocks are wont to do? I mean, I meet with people all the time, all the time, who love him for his grace. We love him because he forgives us of our sins and he he helps us up when we fall down. We love him as a savior, but let me ask, do you love him as your king? Do you love him when he tells you no? Or better, does he ever tell you no? 
Are you glad that you're not in control of your life? That your circumstances, your life is in, are in somebody else's hands? Do you rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances, as the Bible says, because your life is ruled by a king who is good, under whose rule you gladly rejoice? It was C.S. Lewis who said, of course this isn't true, because what most of us want is we want a grandfather in heaven, not a father. And I know exactly what he means, right, when C.S. Lewis says that. C.S. Lewis gets to the heart. He gets underneath that question a little bit, and he says, you know, in my experience, what most people, what most people want is not a father. They want a grandfather. And, of course, we know the difference, don't we? And if, I mean, a father, at least good fathers, correct their children. They do the right thing. My wife was gone most of this week. It's very important to her. Uh, and she leads us well in wanting us to eat really well. And so I planned, uh, you know, the week out and went to the grocery store and got everything I needed, and we did okay, I, you know, not great. We may have had Panera three or four times for breakfast this week. <laughs> Maybe, you know, but muffins, it's not too bad I don't until I look at the thing and there's 600 calories in a muffin at Panera. But anyway, so we did fairly well. I did work really hard because a father trains and disciplines his children. He tells them no. He does the things that are good for them. We go to the soccer field yesterday. My in-laws are coming in because we have four kids that play, you know, stuff. And so we literally had to be three different places at one time. I, I, uh, my, my, my father-in-law takes my children into the soccer field. I have to walk out to the car to put something away and come back. By the time I walk out to the car and come back, here's my eight-year-old daughter with a chocolate bar in this hand and cheese fries in this hand. And I thought, hey, it's gone to pot right there. It took ten minutes because granddad came. And, of course, granddad's question is, what do you want? (laughs) Granddads don't say no. They say yes. Yes, dear, of course. And what we want is we we want a grandfather in heaven who will just give us, coddle us, and give us all the things we want. We don't want a father who will discipline and do, and, and do, and, you know, do the right thing for us. And so do you love, do you love him as your king? And the scripture answers this question for us. That in our natural sinful condition, we don't rejoice in his rule. But just what Jonathan said, we resent it. Listen to Psalm 2. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bond apart and cast away their cords from us. And it's a picture of every human heart there in Psalm 2. The Bible says that every intention of the thoughts of the heart is evil. And so that's how the thoughts of our hearts toward God's kingly rule in our life is evil as well. So when we naturally think of God as a king, we think his rule is oppressive. I've got to break free from it or I'll never be happy. And so the Gospel of Matthew goes on to say that there were many who did not meet Jesus on the Mount of Olives with singing. Instead, as he made his way into the city, they understood the implications of his coming the way that he did out of Zechariah chapter 9. And as a result, they began to plot his destruction. So the natural, sinful tendency of the heart is to resent Jesus' work as king and to try to get out from underneath it. And that's what the Bible calls pride. We want to run our own lives. We want things in our hands, not in somebody else's. We want to be in control. And we rejoice only when we have a semblance of control, but as soon as things are out of control, we fall apart. And so that's the natural, sinful inclination of the heart. But the supernatural response of the heart that has been changed by the gospel is to rejoice and to sing aloud because the king comes to save, even if the one he comes to save me from is myself. Now, the Bible 
also gives us a test if you're wondering really where you are in your journey of faith in this. The Bible does give us a test as to whether we rejoice at being ruled or whether we resent it. And it is uh, in God's sovereign placing of earthly kings over us. And so the question we have to wrestle with this morning is, is do we have enough humility to submit to the king by joyfully submitting to earthly kings for his sake? Kids, do you rejoice that your parents get to tell you what to do? When they tell you no, think about this for a minute. When they, kids, when, they, when your parents tell you no, do you go to bed that night instead of, you know, and, well, I'm sorry. When they tell you no, do you go to bed, right? Instead of going to the party that you, with your friends or whatever the case may be, do you go to bed and do you pray and you say, God, thank you for giving me parents who are wise enough to know what's best for me and strong enough to tell me no. No, 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 you don't do that. But why not? Why not? Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud. Behold, your father is coming home and he will deal with you soon. Right? Can you imagine a mom saying that to a kid? Rejoice. Your father is coming home soon. Okay, adults, you're not off the hook either. What about you? Do you rejoice when you get told what to do? Do you have enough humility to submit to the king by joyfully submitting to the earthly kings he puts over you for his sake. And we have a real problem with this in our culture. And there's some underlying philosophical, cultural uh, shifts, massive earthquake-type stuff happening in our culture um, that we don't have time to get into this morning. But you see it everywhere you go. That There's a complete and utter disgust and disregard for anything that, that feels like authority that would dare to push in against my will. You can see it even in things. I, you know, I'm preparing for the sermon. I get in the car this morning and, and I, you know, to come to church, and we were jamming out yesterday, coming home from the soccer field or whatever, and Magic's new song, Rude, is on, right? Why you got to be so rude? Everybody knows this. And I don't know, adults, you probably have not listened carefully enough to know. It's the story of a, of a man who wants to marry a girl, and so he goes to have a conversation with her father and says, I want to marry her. Will you please say yes? And the father says, absolutely not. And he says, well, you know what? Why God be so rude? I'm going to marry her anyway. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, in other words, how dare a father tell a boy that he can't marry his daughter? That's just rude. No, maybe it's smart. And given the rest of the lyrics of the song, I would say it probably is. <laughs> right? But what you see everywhere, what you see every cultural underlying earthquake, cultural philosophical shifts that come out in just this absolute disdain, particularly by young, the younger you are, the more so it's true of you. And you should just know that. And it's something we have to deal with because, you see, the scriptural evidence is overwhelming, overwhelming. And I'm just going to rattle off a few things to you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Paul says, Ephesians 5. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord. Can anybody finish that sentence? Because what, what he says next is really, really important. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You know what that means? It means it's the only way the parent-child relationships works. It's the blueprint for flourishing, that word right. We're going to get to this in just a minute. Righteous means straight. It, it means that something is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Right, you can't cut a steak with you, you can't cut 
Uh, well, you cut a steak with a knife and you clean your ears with a Q-tip. But what happens if you switch those things around? And that's what you do. Children, obey the, your parents and the Lord for this is right. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. First Timothy 5, respect those who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. This is probably spiritual leaders. We need people to be under. It's good to be under other people, people who get to correct us. Hebrews 13, 7, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. And he goes on to say, if you make their work hard, then their work will be of no advantage to you. There's an advantage to having people who are, who are, who are godly, who are looking out for you and trying to do what's best for you. And you miss out on the blessing. But not just spiritual leaders. And this is someone that's hard for some of us. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And whoever resists the authorities resists God and will incur judgment. In 1 Peter 2, be subject to the Lord and for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So the Bible, the scripture is overwhelming and it's calling us to come underneath the authority that God has put into place, the, the earthly kings that the true king has put over us for our own good and protection. Now, so much of the hard work of what, of what I do is not necessarily teaching the Bible. It's trying to take things out here to make these things that we're talking about the Bible make sense to you. And uh, so my, my attempt at doing this uh, to, today is with this idea of authority is um, my daughter has been cr- just all week long wanting to go bowling. It's her favorite thing to do. And so uh, my 8-year-old, when we go bowling, of course, the first thing that we do is uh, you have to get the bumpers, right? Because it's no fun if you don't get the bumpers. And so... Uh, we go to, we go bowling, and this is why she likes to go bowling. It's because she can she can just about beat the rest of us because we put the bumpers and you put the bumpers up. And what the bumpers mean is no matter how bad you are, you can score pretty well because the bumpers keep the ball from going in the gutter and rolling down the lane. Right? You got everybody knows what I'm talking about. You know these things, uh, and so it keeps the ball going in the right direction. So my little girls with the bumpers, they might bowl a hundred or close to a hundred, and it drives their older brothers crazy because I don't let the boys use the bumpers, and they think that's unfair. And it kind of levels things out, right? And so, but if you take the bumpers off, if you take the bumpers off, then what happens to them is ball after ball goes into the gutter, and they might score a 30. Now, authority, parents and spiritual leaders, okay, and even civic institutions, these things, and this might sound cheesy, but I think this is helpful, those things are like the bumpers at the bowling alley. If you don't need them, if you don't need them, you won't even know they're there. But if, if you're headed straight down the lane towards the pins, they're of little consequence. But when you start to veer from the center and you're headed for the gutter, right, then there they are to redirect you and keep you going in the right direction. My wife uses a phrase, the circle of protection, right? That's her, that's her phrase. If you, if you get outside of our authority, you're outside of the circle of protection. That sounds really scary, Right? The bumper thing sounds not so bad. But, but the whole idea is just this, that spiritual authority and even civic authority is there to keep us uh, from falling off into the gutter. Earthly kings are protection against the one thing that will kill you, your pride. And that's why at the beginning I said this takes humility. Humility is not thinking too highly of yourself. The opposite of humility, of course, is pride, and pride is overconfidence. It's an unrealistic expectation or evaluation of yourself. It's believing that you'll bowl a 300 on your first trip to the bowling alley. The humble person knows that she doesn't know. 
The proud person doesn't know that she doesn't know. And now which of those is more dangerous? If you know that you don't know, then you'll be glad for all the help you can get. But if you don't know that you don't know, you'll blindly follow your own ideas and opinions all the way to your own destruction. Humility means living with a realistic expectation of your sinfulness. Why why does the Bible go through such trouble to win us to the beauty and the wisdom of submission? I mean, the humble person believes himself to be what God says he is, a sinner, a sheep, prone to wander, as Jonathan prayed, to get into all kinds of trouble, and he believes that it's his will. See, the humble person believes it's his will that has got him into so much trouble to begin with, and so he's glad for people who would check his will. See, you know a clock is working right if the you hear the tick-tock on the, on the, of the gears on the inside turning. If there's no tick-tock and if the hands aren't making their way around the face, something's wrong, something on the inside's broken. And in the same way, you know that you're working right if your response to the authority and leadership that God has placed in your life, good, humble, wise leadership, and even good and not so good leadership, if your response is humble, joyful, gratitude, and obedience. We were made to rejoice at being ruled. And if your response to leadership and authority in your life, even where there may be some cause for disagreement, is arrogant, defiance, and disdain, then something is terribly wrong. Something's broken. The fix engine light has come on, and you need to take it in for a checkup. Let me just be a friend to you and say, you cannot thumb your nose at earthly kings in your life, whether it be parents or pastors or the president, and claim to be walking in God's blessing. If you thumb your nose at earthly kings, you're walking away from God's blessing. You're walking out from underneath God's protection and provision, and that's a very scary thing. There are all kinds of applications to this that we can make this morning. I'll I'll just give you one. Uh, We believe very strongly in the the spiritual leadership of what we call elders in, in our church, in the session, which is the group of elders. And I remember my first experience with this. And when I began to be one, I, I came from a church that be- believed in the autonomy of the local church and that pastors should have autonomy and really be islands unto themselves to be able to do whatever it is they want to do and follow God and go off into the hills and hear from Jesus and come back and tell everybody else what Jesus is saying. It's a little bit of a scary way to do it. But I remember when I first um, began to attend Trinity Presbyterian Church, we were planning a church, and some of you don't know this part of the story, but there was a time where uh, they had hired me to plant this church, Church of the Redeemer in Winter Haven, uh, but after a year or so down the road, they asked if we would consider selling our house and moving our life to Lakeland um, because uh, they needed help there at that church. And I uh, really was I freaking out about that because I didn't want to do that. And I uh, had two or three weeks of really, really um, hard, hard uh, times of prayer and searching. And I felt like if I moved, I may never get back here and do the thing that I really wanted to do. But here were the men in my life asking me to do this. And so I went back and forth, and I found a letter this week. Uh, that I wrote to the session back in 06. And in the letter I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what God's telling me to do. I I have no idea uh, whether God would have me stay in Winter Haven or go to Lakeland. I really feel like I want to stay here. You guys are telling me to go there. I'm really confused. And so here's all I know. And it was a watershed moment for me in my life. Here's what I said in the letter. I said, I don't know what to do. So please tell me what to do. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Because it's the only way I know to live. Is under the wise and loving guidance of people who are over me in the Lord. And uh, in God's grace, they relented and asked me not to move, and here we are. But I remember, <laughs> praise God, for me too, believe me. 
But, but it was my first encounter with this wise, godly leadership and putting, my, putting, me in, putting myself in their hands. And it was beautiful, and it's such a great place. Okay, so secondly, you've got to know you need a king. And I took a long time. We're going to be a lot quicker on these next two. But the second thing in order to flourish, you not only have to know you need a king, but you also have to know the king you need. And in order to rejoice at being ruled, you have to know you're in good hands. You have to know the king who rules over you. You have to know that he is good and kind and he has your best interest at heart. Not always earthly kings, but the king who's put earthly kings over you. You have to know, you have to know all these things. So you have to have humility and theology. And that's why Zechariah not only announces that the coming of the king, he also tells us what kind of king he will be. Look at verse 9. Behold, your king, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. He's a humble king. He's a righteous king. And so it matters that we know what kind of king he is. Now, we need to put this uh, description in, in context. The promise of this king here in verses 9 and 10 in Zechariah is in response to the failure of Israel's political and religious leaders upon their return from the exile. All of chapter 11, if you were to go a couple pages to the right, is about the failure of Israel's shepherds their spiritual and political leaders. And so in, in 11.16, here's a description. He says, They do not care uh, for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but they devour the flesh of the fat ones. In other words, they're using their power and authority selfishly to destroy others and to privilege themselves. And that's the problem with earthly kings. That's why all those scriptures that I read a minute ago are so scary. We're used to people who have authority using it to crush the weak and advantage themselves. And as a result, we've become cynical and oftentimes with good reason. It's one of the reasons why being ruled sounds so horrible. But the king that Zechariah promises here is completely different than the earthly kings we're used to dealing with. Listen, behold your king, he says. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. He's a righteous king, we're told. It's a very important word. It means that he has integrity. He's trustworthy. It means that he rules for the good of his people, even to his own hurt. That he doesn't use his power and authority for his own benefit. He does what is right and not what is popular and not what advantages himself, but what does good to his people. He is humble, we're told. He doesn't make a big deal out of himself. He's much more concerned with the needs of those he serves. He's unselfish and motivated in all that he does by love for his people. And this king in Zechariah, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see it in his person and his work, in his person. In Luke's gospel, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, in fulfillment of these verses, and the crowds are singing and dancing before him, now I, I picture him doing the princess wave, right? Anybody else? The flannel graphs in VBS as a kid. There he is. Soaking it all in. This moment of triumph finally receiving the kind of praise and acclaim he deserved. And yet Luke, when he records the scene, tells us that when he drew near and he saw the city amidst the crowd's praise and singing, that he began to weep. So there's the crowd. Cheering, singing, dancing, celebrating him. And there is Jesus, not entering into the celebration of himself, but instead weeping over the brokenness of the city he so loved. His heart so absorbed in the needs of others that he seems almost oblivious to the celebration happening all around him. Do you want to know God's heart for you? There it is. Behold your king. Righteous in having salvation and humble. But not only in his person, also in his work. I mean, what's he coming to Jerusalem to do? Jesus is the king bringing salvation. He is so committed to loving you that he would die 
to save you from sin and death and hell. Philippians 2, Paul says, he made himself nothing, took no, that means took no thought for himself, but became a servant obedient even to death on the cross. He's not like all the other earthly kings that would use their power to manipulate and control. Jesus uses his power to bless and to save. So it is right that the pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem that day would sing and shout and that the rocks would threaten to cry out at his coming. His heart is so great. His love is so true. His righteousness is so constant. His humility is so endearing that if we knew him rightly, we would not keep him from his throne. Instead, we would gladly bow before him and rejoice in his rule over us. I told you my wife's been out of town a little bit, and so um, there, uh, you know, there are some things that, that dad um, fudges on. Uh, and one of the things, my daughter uh, was not feeling well one night, and so she wanted to watch a movie, and so we sat down. I've never seen it before, but we watched um, Ella Enchanted. Right? Good girly movie. And again, another, and I, I get made fun of for kind of, I kind of dig girly movies sometimes. Uh, and this one was pretty good. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie. It's the movie with Anne Hathaway. It's based on a novel by Gail Carson Levine that won the Newbery Book Award. And so that made me feel a little better about watching uh, the movie. It's an adaptation of the Cinderella story. At her birth, this girl Ella is given the gift of obedience by a well-meaning but terribly misguided fairy. And so as a result... She's unable to disobey any direct order, which proves to be a curse and not a gift. And as she grows older, what happens is, is her rivals learn about the spell and use it against her, and it causes her a great deal of misery and heartache. And this is really how we imagine submission, oppression, right? Submission is oppression. The goal is to be free, to be able to choose for myself what I want to do and not to have somebody else choose for me, to rule myself, not to be ruled. But man, I started to think about that. That assumes too much. It assumes... Too much wisdom on my part, it assumes too much innocence on my part. It assumes the problem in my life is that my will is being frustrated and not that the problem is my will. And this is right where I think this story of Ella Enchanted is so helpful if we read it rightly. You see, in Ella's story, the spell is finally broken when her true love, the king, commands her to marry him, which is the very thing she most longs to do, and she's able to say no. But it begs the question, doesn't it? What, what, why does that break the spell? And the answer is because the king in commanding her is motivated only by love for her and she in saying yes or saying no is motivated only by her love for him and it's love that breaks the spell. Isn't that sweet? Now if you assume, see, it's a little bit deeper than that, I promise. But if you assume... The problem in the story is her powerlessness. And there's feminists that have taken it and really gone with it and talked about how the problem is her powerlessness. The problem is the weakness of her will against the strength of others. Then the solution would be for her to get power back. And that's how we normally define freedom. Freedom is power. Ella's salvation would be to somehow find the inner strength to exert her will over the will of others. And we might expect that kind of ending. In fact, we might read the story that way. But if we do, we'd miss the whole point. Because the point is this. The problem with my life is not that I am powerless and I need more power or I need to take power. The problem, that assumes my life uh, would be better off if I had power over others. (laughs) No, the problem is my will. And what breaks the spell, what makes her free is not her will finally winning out, but the moment her will bowed itself to love. And it's a beautiful picture of the work of our king in our lives as well. What if you were commanded by a loving king 
to do the very thing you most wanted to do? And what if your heart was so changed by his love that you longed to do the will of the one who commanded you? Can you imagine being that free? It only happens if you know that you need a king. And if you know the king you need. See, you have to imagine your life in the hands of a gentle shepherd who loves you and is committed to always doing you good. And if that's how you imagine your life, then you'll find peace. You'll have shalom, the inner and outer calm and flourishing no matter what's happening in your life. And that's the promise of Jesus' reign. So let's finish by looking at verse 10 very quickly. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nation. See, if you rejoice at being ruled, if you know you're in good hands, then you'll find peace, both inwardly in your inner life and also externally in your relationships and circumstances. And so let me just make application to each of those, and then I'm done. Two questions, let me ask. First, are you anxious? If the answer is yes, it's because at some level... You don't know you're in good hands. Either you don't know you need a king or you don't know the king you need or both. Because you see, it takes pride to be anxious. I know that sounds strange, but it does. You're not wise enough to know how your life should go. It takes bad theology to be anxious. And in the place where where there's not enough humility and there's not enough theology, what happens is, is in the vacuum that that leaves, there's will. And anxiety is the inner emotional response to your will being frustrated. You want things to go a certain way and they don't. Or you have a plan and things aren't going according to plan and there's anxiety. But the problem with anxiety is your willfulness. No, if you, you know, if you could rid yourself of willfulness, you'd rid yourself of anxiety. But what if your will was subdued by his love? Do you remember Zephaniah where it says that he will quiet you with his love? What would happen then? Well, there'd be very little anxiety. Because there would be very little will. So let me suggest a couple things. First, you could take your hands off your life. You could put it in his hands instead. You could stop trying to make things go according to your plan and trust him for the outcomes. You'd be a lot more patient with people, a lot less demanding, a lot less do, 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 and go, 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 and a lot more waiting and watching and praying and receiving. You no longer seek to be managing your life through your will. And by the way, it's your will that's messing things up to begin with. Second, not only that, but you, you, begin, you begin to reimagine suffering and even being wronged as training instead of suffering. You'd imagine suffering as training instead of suffering. When you're suffering, something bad is happening to you. Bad people have done something to you, but when you're in training, the bad thing that's happening to you is there to help you be better by moving you forward. And it's, it's, a, it's a father or a coach that's allowing these things to come to make you better, and so the result will be an inner calm and flourishing no matter what is happening in your life. But not only are you anxious, let me ask, are you angry? Are you anxious? Are you angry? If the answer is yes, then either you don't know the king you need, or you don't know you need a king, or both. See, it takes pride to be angry. Here I am talking about bad anger now, right? Not good anger, anger with will behind it, anger that, you know, pushes out, in a, in, a, in a wrong way, in a sinful way. It takes bad theology to be angry. Like this too. Instead of humility and good theology, again, what's left? There's will. There's will there. Instead of humility, instead of good theology, there's will. So anger is, anger is the outward emotional response to your will being frustrated in your relationships and your circumstance. But what if your will was subdued by his love? What if instead of managing your life through your will and your anger, you began to trust God instead? Well, there'd be very little anger because there'd be very little will. 
conflict in relationships is the battle of wills. That's what it is, right? Your will and my will, and we cling against one another. So when, when, when we collide, there's anger and there's bad feelings. But the promise of the gospel is that he can subdue us to himself in order to create peace. We, by his spirit, can be a community of peace. A people who don't manage and manipulate one another with will and seek to gain power over one another, but who love and serve and come underneath one another. Wouldn't that be great? So the result of that would be the outer, circumstantial, relational, calm, and flourishing, no matter what is happening in your life. But the key, the key is to know that you need a king. And the key is to know the king that you need. As the old hymn writer said, The king of love, my shepherd is, his goodness never faileth. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Let's pray. Can we do that? Father, even as we uh, gather around these songs to sing them together, uh, I pray that you would put into our hearts uh, the same joy and delight that was in the hearts of those that met you, Lord Jesus, on the road into Jerusalem on that day of your triumphal entry. Uh, that, that in reasoning with our hearts the way we have for the last 30 minutes or so, that, that you would come with your love and you subdue us to yourself and that the result would be a joy and a peace that we have seldom known in our lives. Uh, for our good, Father, come. Thank you for the promise that you, uh, Lord Jesus, are not only a prophet and a priest, but also a king. And as king, your work is to rule and to protect us from our enemies and to subdue us to yourself. And so would you come uh, by your gospel and do that, subdue us to your love, that we might find the calm and flourishing that evades us, that we so desperately need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you belong to him and if you put your life into his hands, this benediction is your promise. I mean, this is a promise to those who put their lives in his hands and joyfully place themselves underneath his reign and rule. Uh, Can I implore you one more time? You could not be in better hands. So turn to him in faith and repentance. If you're here and not a Christian or if you're here in in a Christian, turn to him in faith and repentance and hear again the promise that he makes to all of those who are in his hands. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.